Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today is our conversation with one of the original cast members of Star Wars, Mr. Anthony Forrest. From portraying Luke's friend Fixer in the deleted Anchorhead scenes, to getting called to play the infamous move-along Sand Trooper, Mr. Forrest has some incredible stories, including one at the very end that you do not want to miss. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 31, Anthony Forrest. by Mr. Anthony Forrest, a renaissance man, an actor, a musician, who also played Fixer and uh, the Move Along Sand Trooper in the original Star Wars movie. Mr. Forrest, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Yeah. So we can uh, we can move right along. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, before we even get into Star Wars, I'd love to first talk about what inspired you to become an actor? What inspired you to kind of get into show business to begin with? Uh, it was a... Uh... It was a combination of having done uh, a fair amount of theater in high school, and uh, then I went on to do public performances at theaters in Montreal, uh, mainly because I was interested in theater. I, I'd always uh, acting. With, it, it wasn't even so much of the acting. It was really more about the writing and, and the, uh, the storytelling mm -hmm. that I was fascinated with. And, and theater was was just a natural uh, extension of an extrovert, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is probably probably true in a lot of cases. Right. So I I was the, I was eager to get on stage, and um, I also I, I was doing music at the same time. So there, there was it was it was quite a, a natural crossover to. To be on stage playing music, and then you know to, to be interested in doing theater and performance, and I, I just loved the, the classic. I mean, I've, I'd fallen in love with Shakespeare, and it was just fascinated by the uh, the whole aspect of, of theater production. Again, it was a live. It's it's one of those things because it is live, and, it, and with theater, there's a lot of camaraderie, people pulling together to make a show work, and that it was just a great atmosphere to be in. So that was really, so how the acting continued was I'd gone on tour with a band uh, that we played in, and we were out west in western Canada, and uh, there were so many of us in the band, because it was, it was in the days when horn sections were really popular, so we ended <laughs> up with like nine, nine people in the band. <laughs> uh -huh. So so none of us made any money to, to speak of, and so when I got back to Montreal, I was kind of feeling broke. And so I thought, well, I'm going to put myself out there and see if I can get any work. And so I managed to find myself an agent who was very helpful. And it kind of just it started to, to, to just naturally start work its way through. Um, the first jobs I got were TV commercials, um, which is great because I thought, oh, well, I'm actually getting paid. Right. <laughs> so that, that was that was. After live, I remember when we were in the band, I had this this need to have a reel to reel tape recorder because um, I wanted to record some music, and in order to do that, I, I ate donuts for two weeks. <laughs> that was yeah, that was that that was how I saved money. I went on a donut diet for right. two weeks. Healthy, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do. No, no, I wouldn't do that today. <laughs> when you're when you're. You know, when you're young and you can, you know, get out and run around and exercise, then right. you can do that. But these days, it's not as easy. 
I know we talked initially, we've talked to like Garrick, and I know there was a lot of, initially in those first Star Wars movies, like Canadian actors either going to England to um, work as actors or then coming onto the Star Wars production. What was that experience like? Well, it was, it was really, um, it was one of those things where I, I had, I had felt uh, in, in the early 1970s, I felt that I needed to kind of move on from, from Montreal and mm-hmm. I wanted to explore the world. And, and so um, having been born in the UK, it, it gave me a little more flexibility as a Canadian than, mm-hmm. than moving down to the States. Right. Uh, simply because the paperwork was easier to deal with. <laughs> yeah. and, and also, and, and also I hadn't seen a lot of my family in, in England. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. And, uh, and so that was kind of a, a natural progression for me to want to go to London. And I must say that I was very lucky when I got to London. I, I, I nailed some jobs right away. And mm-hmm. so I virtually got off the plane broke. And within a week, I was working, Wow, um, which was very lucky. I mean, you know, it was it was just very fortuitous for me mm-hmm. that I, you know, things kind of came came towards me. And I just accepted openly, you know, whatever was going on, uh-huh. partially because it was just completely new experience. Right. And I was having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I was, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was really enjoying being in London, mm-hmm. and so I, I managed to 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 do some commercial work, and and, and then I got a series working on the BBC, mm-hmm. and so that kind of set me up to to wanting to spend some more time in London, and there, at that time there were a group of actors who were Canadians and Americans who were who were all. You know, exploring the the acting trade in the UK because England has such a uh, and the United Kingdom has such a great history right. of of theatre and, and production and performance. Uh, you know, there's an awful lot of influential uh, British actors who, you know, who would uh, and actresses who would who would, had made such a great impression uh, around the world in terms of their just their performance, just, you know, the work that the, the, the films they worked on, the productions they worked on, just the caliber was, was exciting to be around. Mm-hmm. With, with Star Wars then looming, I, I assume it was a normal casting process. How did you first kind of get uh, in that situation and, and kind of build the momentum to then end up in Tunisia? My agent at the time had called me in for uh uh, I've got an interview for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I got the address and everything, and it, there wasn't much explanation to it what it for. It, there was no mention of what the project was. Mm-hmm. It was just, uh, you know, you're going in for an interview at, at the, the 20th Century Fox building in Soho Square, mm-hmm. and uh, you'd be meeting with George Lucas. So I was kind of blind in terms of what I was walking into. Um, and so that, when I got there, it was pretty much a... Uh, uh, empty office space, which obviously was extra to office space at 20th Century Fox as a studio was able to uh, to allow productions to use if they were coming into town for castings and things mm-hmm. like that. And so uh, I walked in and, and then in the room and there was George, <laughs> and and we sat down and uh, and we talked and uh, and so most of the first first meeting was was really just. I think him getting to know me and getting to know my background mm-hmm. and what I was a little bit about what I was about. And the, the, it went on to a second and a third meeting, which was kind of interesting. I think, I think he was thinking of various roles or parts, you know, he was just in his mind trying to try to get a sense of, of, of who we were or mm-hmm. who I was as a person, et cetera. 
And from that, my agent contacted me and said they'd like to offer you the role of fixer. <laughs> uh-huh. And so I thought, well, okay, great. You know, let's, this, is, this, this sounds exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, see, George didn't explain an awful lot to me about the movie. Right. It wasn't until I, received, until I received the screenplay and I read the screenplay did I actually sit down and kind of go, oh, wow, okay. Uh, this is going to be a, a tough one to make. You know, in terms of, of uh, you have to remember, it, it wasn't until 2001 Space Odyssey um, that we really started to feel a sense of the fact that we could go to, we could venture to space on screen right. and, and having it feel like we were there. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, that George Lucas was, was keen to get as many people who had worked on 2001 Space Odyssey in terms of the technical side and and, uh, and the various departments to be involved in Star Wars. And as you might notice, uh, Star Wars was filmed, the original was filmed at Elstree Studios where 2001 Space Odyssey was made. So there's 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 kind of uh, synchronicity that's going on all through it. What I love about the character Fixer and the situation that he is in, which is the Anchorhead scenes, it's very reminiscent of George's earliest work. It's very reminiscent of like American graffiti in, in space, right? And kind of teenagers hanging out and just messing with each other. Uh, what was that like right. filming in Tunisia and flying out there? What were those experiences with Mark and Ku Stark and, and Garrick Hagen like? I had a lot of fun. I was just yeah. <laughs> I was just glad for I, I was glad to be working and I was glad to be out of the rain. All right. of a sudden we're, you know, it's April and you're in Tunisia and it's, it's beautiful weather. Right. A little windy, but it was it was uh, it, it wasn't rainy all day when put it that way. Right. I met Mark and, and we got along, you know, we had a drink at the bar at the hotel and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And then I and I'd met Garrick, and I think it was the second day that I met Koo. Mm-hmm. And I think the the when you're working on the films uh, and you're on location in that, uh, there's a there's a natural camaraderie that that starts to happen simply because you're you're isolated mm-hmm. in, in that way as a you know as a team. You become a team because you're you're, you're all you know strangers in a strange land together. And I, we, you know, we had fun. We, we, uh, I think we were were enjoying the fact that we were, you know, everything was was feeling new. Uh, the look, you know, where we were was new. Right. Uh, the script, the costumes, everything was, you know, was, was 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 fresh and original. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's a big factor in in uh, in, uh, in why Star Wars was so successful. Right. Is it's. it's it was really, you know, it came out of left field. It was completely original in uh, in its approach and its storytelling. Well, these were some of the first scenes ever filmed for Star Wars, the Anchorhead scenes. What was that process like getting into the character and being one of the first people to really get in, into the world and the galaxy of Star Wars? For me personally, that came quite naturally because, again, there there is a difference between film. I, I find personally there is a difference between filming on location and filming in studio. Right. And filming on location, especially where we were filming, you had a sense we we were naturally I naturally had a sense that we we're you know this is another planet this is I've never been here before yeah <laughs> you know this is I've never been to this kind of desert uh, experience right. and these buildings and this culture uh, and so that really helped to 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 make you know give that sense of uh, outer worldliness to uh you know 
it's you know because there's a lot going on in your mind. Obviously, you're thinking about you know the production and and, and the, you know, the scenes and things like that. Right. But it it does help when you're actually put into an environment that is conducive to to the story. Mm-hmm. Well, then, and they look great on it. Looks great on film. I it, mean, all the stuff in Tunisia really looks fantastic. It looks incredible. And I remember when it was the because unfortunately it it got cut from the final edit, but this. Anchorhead scenes were just kind of mythic, right? People hadn't really seen them. They'd only seen photos and storybooks and and making up stuff. And when it was finally released, it was a very interesting look at a, a Star Wars that we hadn't seen yet. What was that kind of like? I believe it was released kind of in the late 90s. What was that like kind of going right. back and finally kind of seeing it fully cut and, and fully out there for the public to, to watch? I was happy that the, the the scenes came together in the way that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as you said, there's there's a, there's a uh, a little similarity to to or the feel uh, of what American graffiti was like, right. um, uh, which in some p- cases people say that's one of the reasons it was cut from the film. Is George didn't want to relive that. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't want to he didn't <laughs> yeah. want to hit on it twice right. in his in his films. Um, but I think that. I think in, uh, my feeling was in seeing it was the fact that it 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 does help to 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 understand the uh, a little bit more about Luke's position mm-hmm. and and maybe why he's so eager to get out of there and also the relation you know it gives you a bit of background of of what he's coming from. Uh, I would say Fixer wasn't interested in leaving simply because he he's the only guy who had a girlfriend. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, he he had Toshi Station. He had a gig. He, right. he, you know, he was he had a comfortable setup going on. So he's not exactly enthusiastic about running <laughs> off to somewhere. Right. Whereas, you know, Luke Luke was eager to get out of there and get on with his life. I remember first reading them. I believe it's in the. It still makes it into the novelization and kind of it fleshes out the characters even more and it kind of describes that. And what you're saying is is perfect, right? Where it it gives Luke a little more motivation of why he really wants to leave. Tatooine, and I think that finally seeing it, and finally seeing the work that you were able to do, was was a, a huge thrill for me and and a lot of Star Wars fans. At the time, personally as a filmmaker as well, I completely understand why the scenes aren't in there uh, because you're dealing on a on a time factor in the movie, and this is this is a fair amount of dialogue and, and its backstory. That do we need really need to to have it in the film uh, when we want to really kickstart the story? Mm-hmm. And get to the crux of it, you know, get to, you know, get to the action. And and so I think that, you know, when you look at those scenes and you also remember that there are scenes between Luke and, and uh, Obi-Wan that are slower, more intimate scenes, then I can see that the the uh, the anchorhead scenes would have, to an editor's perspective, would have been slowing the process down. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they want to, normally you're trying to move the story on right. uh, as quickly as possible. And also you've, you've got a limited amount of screen time. I mean, the original Star Wars script is 142 pages, mm-hmm. which is long in terms of, of uh, screen time. And so there going to need to be cut somewhere along the way in order to, 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 to get it within a reasonable length. And that's just being pragmatic. That's just, you know, if you were an editor. You know, right. That's the business of film, uh, especially of Hollywood film. Today, we were, now you could probably quite easily put the whole film together and all the bits and pieces that, that weren't in there 
and you could probably release it and the audience would be, be perfectly happy to see the whole thing through. As we've adjusted because of DVDs and, and, and streaming and that, to be able to sit down and watch a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. And a three hour movie. You know, we've, we've become a lot more acclimatized to that. Whereas, if you remember, movies were only two reels. They used to be, it was 90 minutes. Right. I, don't, I don't know if I'm answering the no, question. That was, that's, just no, rambling. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Well, uh, the other major scene that you were a part of, and now it's iconic and has been copied and parodied and, and just brought up so many times in, in the media, is the first use of the force memory trick, which is, of course, the very famous scene of the Sand Trooper and um, the crew in the land speeder. How did that come about, um, and how are you kind of tasked for that role? That was uh, that was completely being in the right place at the right time. <laughs> I mean, I, I could I I don't know the conversation that was had, but I can only imagine that that somebody at some point said, "We need to get an actor in to do this," mm-hmm. and somebody else turned around and said to George, "We got an actor sitting at the hotel that's not doing it." <laughs> <laughs> It's kind, of, it's kind of like how I envisage that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, you know, I was at the hotel because I wasn't, the anchorhead scenes weren't scheduled to be shot for another couple of days. So we had some time off. So I was at the hotel nursing a sunburn because the day before I'd actually been stupid enough to sit out in the sun out there, which is <laughs> blistering <laughs> in, in the wind. Yeah. And I burnt my shoulders. Uh, yeah. I, so I, um, they came and picked me up at the hotel and said, George wants to see you on the set. So I thought, well, okay, <laughs> what's this about? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, and it was not till I actually arrived there in the car that George was walking towards the car with a script in his hand. And he took me aside and said, can you do me a favor and play this scene? Uh-huh. And I said, no, I've got to phone my lawyer. I don't know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, uh, and it was really, uh, it was really that moment where when he asked me, can you do me a favor? I said, I said sure, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Not knowing what I was getting myself into, really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was kind of just, oh, yeah, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you want to jump off the bridge? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> As a favor for George, anything, right? Yeah. You know, that's what filmmaking, that's one of the things about production is. And it, it, I always feel it should be. It's about people pulling together and making it work. Right. I always think on a film production or any kind of production, everybody should really check their egos at the door mm-hmm. and and realize why they're there. And it's to create something, make something happen, do something exciting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, when he said, uh, could you help me out and, and do this scene? I said, you know, sure, let's do it. And so I, I'm walking and looking at the script, the uh, props guys and the costume people I've already taken my clothes and are dressing me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I had no idea it, until I looked at the script and, okay, uh, a trooper, because it didn't say sand trooper right. or storm trooper, it just said trooper on the screenplay. And I'm looking at it and I go, trooper, okay. Um, trooper, that's a cop, okay. I, yeah. I got that in my head. And I'm looking at it and then I start to see the costume they're dressing me in. And I go, wow, okay. Yeah. Because the one thing George did assure me, he said, don't worry, you'll be in costume and it won't affect the fixer because they're not going to see your face. So you don't have to worry about that. It won't affect this fixer scene. And then it was that moment. And then George introduced me to Alec Guinness. Wow. And I thought, wow, (laughs) this is cool. Yeah. 
I thought this is re- this is really cool. Yeah. You know, I I'd, I'd loved his work for years. This is an opportunity to to uh, to get to play a scene with somebody of of such remarkable talent and yeah. stature. Well, that must have been a very different costume than the fixer costume, right? To wear in Tunisia heat. Uh, robes. Oh, it was. It, I, I I don't. I'm not swearing here. It's. I, it was a pain in the ass. <laughs> put it that way. Yeah. It was a pain on my. It was a pain on my sunburn. It was a pain on the. You know, this these original these were the very first costumes made, yeah. and so they were not. You know, this was not like going to a Savile Row tailor. This is right. this is. These are not designer element. You know. You don't go in for a fitting and then they adjust it. You just kind of get into it and live with it. Right. And so it was very uncomfortable. Pinching it behind the knees, pinch, you know, everywhere it could hurt, it hurt. But you don't compl- – I'm not complaining in the sense of that. I was just, right. you know, I'm just reliving it now. But at the time, you're just getting on with it. You're just right. doing it because you're in the moment. Yeah. Also, as a, yeah, also as an actor, you know, when you're on a set like that, you're t- – the people around you take very good care of you. Mm-hmm. You know, they make sure you're hydrated, you have enough water. Right. You know, if there's any issues, you can almost say something and they'll, they'll have to try and help you out with it. You know, you've got a, a very supportive team around you. But those were the first Stormtrooper costumes. I can't imagine that they were uh, the most comfortable things in, in the world. <laughs> no, they were falling. Uh, I don't know if it shows. Probably somebody's been able to see it. But I think if I remember on the back of my calf, they had to duct tape uh-huh. uh, the... Uh, the, the costume together yeah. because it was kept coming apart because they were not made to measure <laughs> right. first of all what i love now is kind of we were talking about it before um we start recording is is now this camaraderie that's been built around actors whether they're the canadians that ended up working on star wars or just kind of the ones that have formed through the convention circuit and now you know looking back and that was you know, 40 years ago for when you filmed that in Tunisia. And now it's still part of people's consciousness. It's still part of people's everyday lives. And you get to go to these conventions and meet all these fans and meet all these other actors who have who were part of the production. What has that been like for you and, and kind of having Star Wars as part of your life now? It's kind of like having won the Super Bowl. That's kind of, that's about, you know, you get the ring and everything. Right. Right. Because you, it's, it's now gone into it. It's interesting. Star Wars uh, was is steeped in mythology and its storytelling, mm-hmm. and now it's became a th- become mythology in its own right, which is which is it's kind of gone full circle, which is which is an interesting thing. Um, and so the magic of it is, you know, is sprinkled as all with fairy dust. Right. I kind of, you know, I'm 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 forever, you know grateful in the fact of having had the opportunity to be in star wars and also to to you know to benefit from the fandom and and to be a part of that world Mm -hmm. and it is uh yeah it's it's quite amazing how many lives it's people's lives it's touched and i love the fact fans come up to me you know and because of the 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 jedi mind trick scene Mm -hmm. so many people have stories they tell me of how they've used (laughs) it yeah i've i've had you know i've 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 had uh, legal people come up or lawyers come up to me and say, well, I, I use that. These aren't the droids you're looking for in court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so it's, it's been so often quoted by various people that, that it's, it's kind of sweet to, to hear people's stories and how they've, you know, how they've, they've used it in their day-to-day lives. Right. That's so great. Well, now also, in addition to the acting and your director and, and making your own films, you're also a very talented musician. And I was on your website listening to your music and interesting and unique ways of telling story there. What are your inspirations there and, and what has been kind of the main motivator behind the music? Well, the music, 
we'd all, I, I grew up with music around my, the house. My sister was a folk singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's five years older than I am. And she was a folk singer right in the middle of the, the 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, she was playing coffee houses and things like that in Montreal. And so it was always around the house. My dad played guitar. Uh, he played a, uh, a Hawaiian laptop, Dobro, beautiful guitar, solid steel. Mm-hmm. Um, and he used to have his songs. That, that he, he was very much into country country music. Uh-huh. Um, and so uh, that was always around the house. And so I, I'd always been, you know, there was always music in the family. And so I, I became interested in, in quite an early age and also my interest went in towards classical music because my parents had, had managed to pick up a, uh, a box set of probably about 100 albums. You know, guys come door-to-door salesmen selling, you know, box sets of albums back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Fuller Brush Salesman, you know. Or, or, you mm-hmm. know. And, and, he, and my parents bought into it. And all of a sudden, you know, it's like this continuous stream of classical albums being delivered to the house <laughs> over months and months and months. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so I would listen to all of this, and I was fascinated by all the classical music. And, and that was when I was quite young. Um, you know, we, you had a, a crappy old turntable you listened to, and, but I would listen to this. And I remember when I was a little kid spending hours in the bedroom conducting orchestras. When I was, you know, I'd put the, ra- I'd put the turntable on, put the album on, and it'd be Shostakovich or it'd be Beethoven or something, uh-huh. and I'd conduct along. I, I, I saw myself as this conductor when I was you know, huh. in the bedroom. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it was, and that, that led to me actually to studying uh, and, and getting involved in studying music. So I went to, you know, I actually studied classical music. I studied orchestration and that. And at the same time, naturally, you know, uh, going to school and that, I went to a, uh, the area that I grew up in, uh, Point Claire in Montreal, had loads of, of bands. Everybody seemed to have a band in their basement. And so it was natural that I wanted to play in a band and, and be part of that scene as well. And I just followed. I just followed it and, and let it lead me. But my inspirations, well, my inspirations were uh, from a songwriting point of view, uh, all the way from from uh, from Bob Dylan to uh, Buffy Saint Marie. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a lot of the folk music is simply because I was here. I was I used to sometimes play guitar uh, back up my sister when she wanted a second guitar. Mm-hmm. And so I was, those were a lot of the, she was playing the folk clubs and stuff like that. So that was natural for me to learn all those songs and to, to appreciate those songs. Although I've, now I appreciate the lyrics much more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Because I was so involved in the, cla- in, interested in classical, I was much more interested in orchestra, orchestra and instruments and things like that. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, unless you're doing opera, you don't have any lyrics to <laughs> uh-huh. work with. And, and I think that at the time when, when I was really in bands, my big influence was Frank Zappa. That was a huge influence. One, because of his genius of orchestration, his arrangements, you know, his musicianship, and the great players he would have in his bands. And uh, I must have seen him play oh, at least a dozen times live in Montreal. I would take any opportunity. Just, it, it was, it was, as a musician, it was, it was just heartwarming to appreciate the, the, uh, the professionalism, but also the invention. There was so much invention going on in the music, especially live. Well, if, if people want to listen to your music, where would the best place for them to go look? Uh, they can find, um, actually, uh, SoundCloud yeah. has, has, a whole, has a lot of the instrumental stuff that mm-hmm. I, I did a few years ago. 
Uh-huh. And that was an experiment that I wanted to do. I wanted to just kind of mold. I hadn't played guitar for a little while, so this guitar turned up at our house to one of my kids. Uh-huh. And I and I started playing again. And I thought, oh, this is, I forgot how much fun it was. <laughs> uh-huh. And and so I, I, I'd written some Majit music and I started recording it and uh, in the most basic of ways. Uh-huh. And and I decided to put it together into like a, a seven album track, yeah. a seven track album and and uh, and it's it's got a lot of classical influences in there as as people be able to hear but also it was it was good for me just to to get up you know start to play again and and to uh you know to enjoy the invention of of sitting down and creating something from scratch yeah and just put, putting all the pieces together putting the key you know because I, I i there are no other musicians on it i just i just kind of thought one, my wife wouldn't let me spend the money, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down that road. Yeah. <laughs> but, but two, two, two. It was just you know I thought well I, I need to to figure this all out myself so I can you know so I, I put it together little by little you know and and just like a lot of people do now we we you know it's so much better now than than when I was recording for RCA in that as a producer, working as a producer, you know, you were in a studio and it's costing you a hundred bucks an hour or more. I mean, way more. And, and you were, uh, you know, it was, it was a big setup. Now you can do it all from home. It's not the same experience, but as a, as a creator and an artist, it's a great experience to be able to have all those tools right at the end of your fingertips. Definitely. Well, uh, are there any appearances or anything coming up, any conventions that you'll be at? Right now, there's nothing on the books for the the I could say is firm. There's a possibility, a slim possibility, I might go to the uh, the uh, celebration in Chicago. I'm just waiting to hear back on that. There's a Niagara Falls come, oh, which cool. is up uh, up there in Niagara Falls, um, which I've done before, um, and uh, I'm wait. That's in June. Okay. So there's April, possibly June. I don't do a lot of conventions, yeah. actually. Um, I've done, you know, I've done, I've done, I guess my fair share of the years, but, but I, I don't kind of set my schedule to the year to, or what looking ahead, I'm, my schedule really revolves around whatever I'm working on. If I'm writing a script or if, or if I'm, you know, I'm editing two films right now, which, um, is driving me crazy, but I'm getting it done. (laughs) Yeah. And so my focus is very much more, you know, in those those areas, although I do, I, I like going to conventions and I like meeting the fans because yeah. the fans have great stories, yeah. and I love to hear you know their 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 stories as well. Yeah, I remember your first. I think yeah. one of your first convention appearances was a celebration. I think it was like Celebration Four out in L.A. And it was kind of like, right, I yeah. was like, oh, here, because that's the only celebration I've ever been to. And then I'm, right. going, I'm going to Chicago this year. So I'm very excited. So hopefully we, we get to see you there. Yeah, yeah, it'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Celebration Los Angeles was the first time I'd done anything in terms of the uh, Star Wars community. And what was that like? What was that? It was kind of like your uh, like debutante ball. Like, here here I am. <laughs> like, what was that it, like first yeah. meeting people? Yeah, it, well, it was really... It was really interesting because I, I was meeting all the actors, you know, a lot of actors who I hadn't seen for years, uh, for a long time, uh, since 1976, <laughs> yeah. in many cases. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, Garrick, Garrick and I have worked on several films together, mm-hmm. you know, during the 70s and 80s specifically. 
So I, I've, you know, we've known each other quite a long time. But it, it, there were people I was meeting who, who I hadn't met before or spent a lot of time with. So that was kind of fun. And then it was just also experiencing fandom. Yeah. And the whole um, world of uh, Comic-Cons that has developed, mainly, I think, since the advent of the Internet. I think the Internet has an awful lot to do with the ability for Comic-Cons to, to uh, you know, to have blossomed in the way that they have over the last 15 years because people are it's a lot easier now to to set up a comic-con locally and things like that or set up an event and and have people turn up and people connect with each other and so social media has has really helped to bring it to the forefront i think definitely and it's kind of inspired these communities to grow both online and and offline so and it's created all sorts of it's created marriages it's created <laughs> friendships it's created all sorts of things and, and, and so i think that's a positive that's a positive ability to connect people in terms of their their interests mr forrest thank you so so much for taking the time and, and telling your story and and talking about the first days of of filming star wars um it is very appreciated oh it's my pleasure yeah i mean mean, there's i'm sure there's probably little bits and pieces that we could you know go through that uh did garrick tell you this did garrick tell you the story about where i took everybody horseback riding (laughs) garrick did not tell that story we cannot end the episode now uh what is that story (laughs) Uh, it's it's now because my imagination sometimes gets gets like a little bit out of hand. Right. And so what, when I arrived at, in Tunisia and that, and I'm looking out over the desert, and I'm, I'm you know, we're driving to the hotel, and I'm seeing all this landscape, and, and immediately comes to mind, I'm thinking Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. Because <laughs> Star, Star Wars hadn't been made yet, so I'm thinking Lawrence of Arabia, I'm thinking, oh, fantastic. And right. I, and I have in my mind, oh, wow, we're out in the desert, we've got to get some horses and go riding through the desert, <laughs> like in Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. And so, lo and behold, I imagined, I, I managed which was a really naughty thing to do. But then again, when you're in your 20s, you do a lot of crazy things. Right. I managed to get Mark, Kustark, Garrick, and myself on these Arabian horses uh-huh. galloping around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which I think back now, where I, not a good idea for insurance purposes. Right. <laughs> Had anybody known that? Yeah. But it was, it was just, just an adventure that I, I could see us all kind of galloping across. You know, we were making sure we galloped across the desert on these horses. Uh-huh. That's yeah. so funny. Well, I'm sure the yeah. the Star Wars insurance people are, are are were biting their nails back then if they had found out. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, they were nowhere. Considering where the location we were at, they were nowhere to be seen. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that's yeah. That's sometimes why I talk about the way you know my feeling about how Star Wars. I, I often felt was was felt much more like an independent movie, mm-hmm. uh, not so much a Hollywood movie, because right. you know. It, it, there was not there wasn't 300 trailers sitting around everywhere right you know right there was you know it was quite a quite a tight outfit yeah we definitely forget that at this point right the first star wars and even empire strikes back was done on an indie budget and if empire hadn't been successful george lucas would have lost all of his money you know like it's it's kind of this thing where it created this huge empire but initially it was it was this grassroots thing that we were talking about, like, and, and that's really, you know, I think that's really what the, you know, the pro, the creative process should be is the fact that, you know, you just have to do it, you know, you have to get together the tools that you can get together and and just start creating, and so whether it's an iPhone or or, or you know, not the best guitar or whatever, <laughs> you know, just just start. Well, we will put the links to um, your Bandcamp and your SoundCloud in the episode description so listeners can can take a gander and check out what you've been doing. And uh, Mr. Forrest, again, thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for talking with me today. 
Okay, Brandon, my pleasure. Thank you, Andrew, <laughs> for having me on the show. Of course. Yeah. And uh, peace and love to everyone out there. Thanks again to Mr. Forrest for such an inspirational conversation. Links to his music can be found in our show notes, and make sure to swing by his table at Celebration Chicago to say hi and get an autograph. A very special thanks to both Derek from Cool Waters and Gerald Home for helping to coordinate this interview. Also in our show notes is the link for our new merch store, which currently has swag to wrap at Celebration and beyond. Next up, we'll be releasing a bonus episode featuring the adventures of a certain fedora-wearing adventurer. So, until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.